Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Hope you are having a wonderful day today. And if for some reason it isn't a great day, I know that is going to change because we have another caffeinated career conversation. And today, my guest on the latest episode of Time for Coffee is Sarah Rob O'Hagan the Chief Executive Officer of Flywheel Sports. She is also the author of the book, Extreme You, Step Up, Stand Out, Kick Ass, Repeat. Sarah, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you fully caffeinated and ready to go? I am so caffeinated. I'm stoked to be here. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. But not over-caffeinated. You're not shaky, are you? (laughs) Actually, no. I drink a lot of coffee, but it doesn't have that effect on me. It doesn't make me too crazy. Cool. Great. So, Sarah, we begin these conversations with guests by digging into their current job and you, of course, being the big boss at Flywheel Sports. Uh, What are some of the primary functions of your job as CEO? You know, I spend most of my time in meetings with my team, (laughs) not surprisingly. So I would say the primary function of the CEO is really facilitating the cross-functional communication between all the parts of the business. And, you know, I am obviously responsible for leading our longer term sort of strategy and leading my leadership team to pull that together so that all of our day-to-day priorities are focused on how we're trying to move the business forward. So I spend a lot of time in sessions with my team, really just figuring out how to help them think, plan and do. (laughs) If we were looking at a job description of the CEO of Flywheel Sports, it would, I'm sure, list out a whole bunch of things among them being able to lead teams. But if I were a fly on the wall in your office, what would I be seeing and hearing? Well, in our office, we're a pretty high energy group, not surprisingly. And so you'd be seeing a lot of sort of people buzzing around the floor, moving around, interacting with each other. You'd be hearing a lot of laughter. (laughs) We do have (laughs) a lot of fun. You would be hearing the coffee machine, which is appropriate to your (laughs) podcast. Absolutely. And I would say you'd be hearing just lots of chit chat and banter about, you know, the specific projects we're working on. I think we're a pretty spirited group. So we're always, you know, passionately talking about long-term things as well as like right in the moment, you know, that a group might've just walked in the door from taking a class and they're raving about what they thought or how good the instructor was or what they wish was different. So that's probably what you'd be hearing. What are you in the process of doing with flywheel sports. I know you're seen as a as a change maker and as somebody who has helped turn around or reinvigorate various brands over the course of your career. We'll get to that a little bit later. But what are you seeking to do with flywheel? Can you bring us into some of these offerings or new ideas that you're bringing to the public? What we're doing is we're we're expanding on a couple of different axes. So one is that you know we were typically, or at least our founding team, started us off as a studio fitness business. So what that means is you know you take the class in a studio in a building, if you will, <laughs> with a bunch of other people. 
And the first way that we decided to expand was to shift into streaming. So we actually launched um, about nine months ago a platform we call Fly Anywhere, which you can buy the bike and put it in your home and stream the classes right into your home and be riding with our virtual community all over the country, which is super cool. And then at the same time, we knew we needed to start offering more than just cycling workouts. And so we've expanded our suite of offerings to now move into strength and recovery as well as bar if you're familiar with bar programming that we'd always had so we're really starting to shift from just one what we call modality of cycling into multiple modalities so that we can effectively you know provide workouts to people multiple days a week and you can either take it in our studio or at home or on the go if you're in a hotel and you want to stream one of our workouts and do a strength workout in the hotel gym, have at it. (laughs) So in terms of your day, how do you like to structure your time? How many hours a day are you working? Do you take breaks? You mentioned fitness. Obviously, you're in the fitness industry. Do you do that in the middle of your day, at the beginning of your day? How do you like to structure for optimum effectiveness? So I am very structured. I will say that I do work out every day. And most of the time it is first thing in the morning because I just find for me, it's really gets my day started on the right tone. If I've just had that time to be physical and to be alone and thoughtful alone in my own head, whether it's in a studio class or sometimes I might be out running. And then I am a commuter, so I come in on the train and I'm always very sort of prescriptive about how I use that 40 minutes of time just to clear through certain pieces of work or reading that I want to do before the day gets underway. And then my day is typically very, very back to back in terms of meetings. Like I very rarely get, you know, spaces in my calendar, but I have an amazing assistant, Erica, who's been working with me since I was at Flywheel and she's brilliant at really making sure that I prioritize my time with the right kind of meetings that I should be in. Cause obviously there's always lots of places I could be. And then typically work on the train on the way home. I do typically work a couple of hours later at night as well, just sort of getting through any last emails that I haven't had a chance to see and mostly preparing for the next day so that I'm making sure that what I'm going to do the next day is the most productive use of my time. Sarah, you have also founded what you've described as a movement for extreme living. Mm -hmm. And you've written the book that has that fantastic title about stepping up, standing out, kicking ass. What is extreme living and why is this something that you're advocating? Extreme living is what I call getting out of the middle of the road. (laughs) And Because if you stay, if you live your life in the middle of the road, eventually you're going to get run over. (laughs) That's the way I think about it. But a lot of us in life are, you know, raised in environments where we are sort of told not to take too many risks. And, you know, if you've got a good thing, stick with it and don't put yourself out there. And one of the reasons I wrote my book is that I, you know, realized as I had finally reached some success in my life that, you know, people would tell my story and say, you know, look at all these great things she did. And they would leave out the parts about when Sarah got fired twice in her twenties. And when Sarah was responsible for one of the worst athlete campaigns in Nike history, and when Sarah did this, that and the other wrong. And I realized that it was really important to certainly show a younger generation that the most successful people in the world have typically had as many failures as they have had successes. They've typically experienced very extreme 
environments to understand where they really shine. And that includes, you know, making wrong decisions in your career, realizing it's not for you on the way to finding the place where you really shine. And so I started to really get behind this idea of, of extreme living, which is encouraging people to get out there and sort of try every aspect of opportunity to hone in on where they are at their very best. And this idea of being extreme you is really living you, your passions, your gifts, and your unique uh, skills to their highest potential. In the book, you talk about the three easy steps to make a bold career. Can you walk us through those steps? I basically, first of all, talk about this idea of checking yourself out, which is I learned, so I should step back and say when I wrote my book, I actually interviewed about 25 people who all were like successful, like at a world-class level in their field, even though those were very different fields. So everything from Bodie Miller, who's like a professional downhill skier to Condoleezza Rice to Mr. Cartoon, who's a tattoo artist to the White House chef, you know, people in all sorts of different fields. And I was trying to sort of learn what is it that these really successful people have in common. And that's how I sort of distilled it down to these steps. And the first one was about checking yourself out, which was what they all had in common was in their 20s. Basically, none of them knew what they were going to end up being, but they had a real willingness to jump at opportunities, even if they seemed outside of your regular comfort zone or outside of the path that maybe your parents or your professors or your teachers thought you might go on. And by experiencing things and getting out there and trying them instead of sort of waiting behind a computer for the perfect job, you were discovering more about yourself, if you will. And then secondly, that would lead to what I call igniting your magic drive, which is like you're starting to get a sense of the things that you really care about. And when you really care about something, you're going to work a million times harder and more passionately and more diligently to to get it done. And it was sort of, I learned from all these people that they have made their own passion. Like we tell young people these days, go find your passion. Actually, passion is made in terms of really getting out there and putting a lot of hours into something that is of interest to you. And then I talked about once these people have really got themselves going and they're on the right track, that they also have to be willing to get over themselves because what typically happens with people, particularly young people, this certainly happened to me is, you know, you get your first experience of success and you kind of go, oh, I'm amazing. I got this. Like I can, can do no wrong. And those are the moments where you trip up and fall. <laughs> so <laughs> It's really important to, um, you know, to, to be willing at all times to have that humility and understand that, you know, you're only as good as the um, success you're having today, as opposed to thinking yesterday's successes can coast you forever. What did you mean when you said that you need to break yourself to make yourself? So I, in my personal experience, have been fired a couple of times. So I've uh, typically had such embarrassing screw ups that it hasn't been hard to be in that situation of total, like, unbearing, like, humbling sort of humiliation. But for some people that hasn't happened. And one of the things I learned is that if you get to a point in your career, in any role that you're in, where you know you're comfortable and you know you've sort of learned the skills and you've now you've got you've got it down and you're cruising along that's the moment when people who just stay in that lane tend to 
end up staying there and not progressing. Whereas the ones who are willing to break themselves and say, I'm going to purposefully break myself out of this comfortable place and go try something really different are the ones that progress significantly more. So breaking yourself down could mean like in my case, later in my career, I actually chose to, to quit a job with nothing to go to because I was kind of like, I was on the same treadmill that was very familiar. And I was like, what does it look like when you've, you know, you're at the top of your game and you're used to coming into a crazy big office with all these people every day. And then you just go bang, I'm out. <laughs> like, and did, you, did you plan ahead? I mean, did you decide, I know you're married and you've got your kids and whatnot. Did, was this something that you decided you would do in a few months or how much time did you put into the, to the forethought before you quit? It's a great question. A lot. I mean, yes, I'm married with three kids. So I was very much like, okay, I do have to put these kids through college. So I can't <laughs> but I, I did, I planned for, I'd say six months, but in the end, this was the time at which I actually wrote my book. So I didn't have much more of a plan than that. And I'm pleased for that actually, because it was terrifying. You know, there was a number of days I'd wake up going, what have I done? You know, <laughs> and like, it's a very, very kind of, bizarre feeling of suddenly having no relevance or resonance or connection in the career world. But at the same time, that sort of brings out in you a real sense of clarity of what it is that you want to do and what you enjoy doing. And, you know, for me, what came out of that breaking myself moment was a lot of what I'm doing now in terms of really focusing my time on career opportunities that can enable me to sort of unleash the potential in others in a more powerful way, which is, I guess, something that I hadn't really put my finger on that meant so much to me. I know exactly what you're talking about because I also quit my job nice. a year ago nice. and my husband and I had a long chat about it and uh, we took six months and I quit. I was going to write a book. I researched the book. I realized it wasn't the book I thought it was going to be. And it was as a result of not having that and having more headspace just to kind of dream that I came up with this idea for time for coffee. So I totally relate. I don't have the end of my story yet. So we're right at the beginning, but I love that. And you know what else I love is something that you said, which is failure hurts, but fear is even worse. Oh, for sure. 100%. You know, it's fun. It's easy to say when you're my age, I guess I'm 46 now. So I'm like, I've been through so many failures that I know now that you basically do survive and you're okay on the other side. But that is why I think I can see so clearly that when you fear trying something and you don't even try it all, you just never you don't grow, you don't learn, you don't progress. Whereas if you feel the fear and go for it and try and even have the most embarrassing failure, what comes out of that failure is a kind of growth and learning and ultimately resilience that you just won't otherwise have. And I think to this day, I credit the period in my career when I was fired twice for the sort of grit and resilience that I needed to have years later when I was leading the turnaround of a $5 billion global business. You know, it wasn't easy. And when you kind of have developed that resilience because you have taken risks and you have failed, I think it just makes you a much more powerful individual. 
And when you were in some of those positions and maybe feeling, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe when you were feeling out of your depth, did you let your peers know? Did you let your colleagues know? Or did you feel, were you more of the fake it till you make it? That's a great question, actually, Andrea, because I think, you know, I would say earlier in my career, I would fake it if I was feeling, you know, in over my skis. And those were the times when I got into trouble. I, the, the first time I got fired, I was working at Virgin Mega Stores in the days when we bought music from retail stores. How funny is that? <laughs> right. And, exactly. Right. And it was the whole industry was in decline. And it was a very stressful time to be in the business. And I was so out of my depth and so unwilling to ask for help. And what ended up happening is I got fired. You know, I got in a lot of trouble. And as a result, now as a, you know, more experienced leader, I'm so, I try very hard to model in front of my team every day when I don't know something, because if you see the leader openly, openly saying, Hey guys, I don't understand this. I don't get this. Explain it to me. Then you're sort of modeling that behavior for others and you're saying it's okay. And I think when you share with people your vulnerabilities and you share with them what you're not so confident in, it actually brings people to want to help you. And it's very counterintuitive, but if you fake it, then people are kind of like, oh, she's got this, you know, and then you can find yourself getting into trouble, which is no fun. Yeah, that is great advice. You have worked for some of the biggest brands out there. You mentioned Virgin Atlantic, Nike, Gatorade, Equinox. Was it part of your master plan back when you were at the University of Auckland to go to work for these types of companies? What, what was your major in school? Yeah, so I studied marketing and international business. And it's funny, I, so I was going through college in the era of Michael Jordan and Nike and Just Do It and <laughs> And I was a marketing student. So I had this very sort of obsessive, like passion and desire for that brand. And I always wanted to work at Nike and likewise, Virgin, obviously in those days, you know, Virgin was such an anti-establishment disruptive brand on the scene in terms of the airline. And so all I kind of had was this random dream of working for those two brands, but I had absolutely no path or thought of how I was going to get there. <laughs> and so really, you know, I would say one thing just led to another. And it's funny, like when I look back now, people always say, oh, you worked for these amazing brands. It wasn't really planned out that way at all. But what I will say that I did, and I am glad I did, and it's good advice for young people, is I did not let recruiters put me in a box. Like at the very beginning of my career, my first job was Air New Zealand, which is the national airline of New Zealand. And I absolutely loved it. And then six years in, I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I want to go do something different. I want to work whether it was Nike or wherever else. And recruiters will typically go, but you're an airline person. What are you talking about? You're an airline person. And if you let them, you will end up staying in the box that they put you in. Whereas I decided, no, I'm not going to accept that. And I'm going to go out of my own way to sort of navigate into different businesses. And I think it's, it's important. You know, you may not know where you want your career to go, but be sure that you're at least navigating it 
yourself because other people aren't going to do it for you. (laughs) So before I ask you about that, can you tell us how you got your first, how you got that first job with Air New Zealand? How did you go about getting it? I love sharing the story because I think it's a good one for young graduates to hear. I, so I actually applied at my, my college, my university, like lots of companies would come and they, you know, you'd be able to apply for jobs. And there was like hundreds of us trying out for six slot in a company. And I tried out for New Zealand and we had to take all these kind of standardized tests and I absolutely failed and did terribly. And so I didn't get a callback and Yet in my mind, I was absolutely determined that I needed to work there because I was like, of all the other options, there were things like mobile oil. And I was like, Jesus, that's not where I <laughs> But I thought, God, if I could work for an airline, they'll fly me around the world. How amazing will this be? I have to work there. And so I chose not to take no for an answer. And I went back to the recruiting team at the airline and I said, I really screwed this up. And they're like, we don't care. You screwed it up. Drive on. And I just kept going back and saying, but I have a plan and I want to share it. And I guess I just was determined enough. They finally broke down and gave me a half hour with the hiring manager. And boy, did I plan for that half hour harder than I planned for anything in my life. And I walked in there with a really strong point of view on where I could help the airline instead of just walking in there going, Hey, I'm 20 something. Give me advice. I was like, no, I want to work here. Here's my plan. Here's why I can be good for you. And I ended up getting hired. (laughs) And the reason I like to share that story is because I think I often hear from young people today. It's like, it's such a tough economy. It's hard to get jobs. Yes, yes. And yes. But at the end of the day, don't take no for an answer. If you out hustle the next person, you'll be surprised the doors that might open. (laughs) I'll tell you what, Sarah, there's another woman that I interviewed who's in the field of international development, and she had zero experience and wanted Mm. to work for an NGO in London. And she went there finally day, literally day after day after day and said, I will work for free. I will do anything. And finally, after weeks of having her show up, they let her do, they let her come in, work for free. And it, she managed to impress them and eventually got a paying job. That is so awesome. I love stories like that because it's real. I think people don't understand that you know, there's a fine line between being sort of annoying and stalkerish <laughs> and because that does happen. I mean, I, I definitely have found like people think if they kind of come at you enough that you'll break down. And I think the difference in the story you just shared is she worked for free. Like she was willing to put her money where her mouth was. And I think the more people do that, the more people, the hiring pe- people are like, wow, that shows how committed you are. Absolutely. A hundred percent. What outside of studying mm-hmm. <clears throat> did you do when you were in school that you realize now actually were assets, whether it was extracurricular activities or maybe a paying job or an internship that you had while at university? It's funny. Now that I look back, I wouldn't have thought of this in the time, but now I look back, I realize how profoundly helpful it was. I I remember it was around about the end of my time in college where I um, decided to organize a ball, a charity gala ball for my friends because I just wanted to go to a ball. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Yeah, it was nothing other than like, wouldn't it be fun to get dressed up? And 
<laughs> and so I got together with a bunch of friends and we, you know, we organized this thing and, you know, we're obviously that involved like figuring out the ticket prices and the hiring the band and the venue and all of it. And, and I didn't realize at the time until, you know, a year or so later, then when you're sitting there interviewing for a job and you're able to explain, you've really held a very clear project management role and how you went about leading people and getting, you know, and it just, at the time it was like a lark, but it turned out to be one of those things that was incredibly helpful as an example of how I lead and think and operate. And so I look back now and I've often thought to myself, that's the advice I would give people in college is like, you can create work experiences in all sorts of places if you look hard enough, you know? And in fact, you were going with your passion there. Oh, yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so many of our Java junkies are still in college. And if you wouldn't mind, if I could expand for a moment the professions that you have expertise in beyond fitness to include marketing. Mm -hmm. What do you recommend they study if they want to go into those fields? Does it matter what they major in? That's a really good question. I would say nowadays, like if I was back in college now, I would actually definitely study psychology. I didn't. And I wished I did now because I think a lot of, um, you know, what we're all doing is trying to learn how to influence and understand human behavior, whether that be in the workplace or in the consumer landscape. So I think that would be number one. And then number two, it would be remiss not to say, you know, something highly digital, analytical, technical in terms of you know, really being able to understand the science and how the science meets the art in today's new media world is very, very important. Yeah. And other than that, I would say anything that's creative and the creative art space, because I do think, um, actually I've heard Angela Aaron's talk about this a lot from Apple, just that I think the great sort of marketers and frankly, business leaders today are the ones that are sort of combining the right and left brain, if you will, like sort of understanding how from creativity comes innovation and future thinking and from sort of the analytical side comes operational excellence that you're going to need. So I would say just paying attention to both sides is probably important. You're obviously an immensely talented and accomplished woman who has done extremely well in your, in your careers. What skills do you wish you had, but don't, and how how are you coping? How have you coped over the years? This is actually a good story for your young listeners. Early in my career, I had a massive blind spot around finance. And so when I was in college, I failed accounting in my first year of college. And therefore, I basically told myself a narrative that I'm dumb. I will never get it. And so I just steered as far away from it as I could. <laughs> and then you suddenly wake up and you're a 30 eight years old and you're leading a $5 billion business. It's a giant P and L and that comes out to really haunt you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I actually ended up going back to do a, I joke about, it, I call it remedial finance uh, class, but, um, they call it adult executive education is a nicer way of saying it. And what was funny for me is in that experience, I actually discovered that I really, really, really enjoyed it. Now, am I ever going to be uh, calling that a strength? Absolutely not. But it really revealed to me that 
I think early in our lives, we can sometimes tell ourselves we're good at some things and not at others. And if you actually force yourself to go try something that you think is not a skill, you might surprise yourself, particularly when you're a, a, a sort of more experienced adult learner, you know, because by then you've got more experience to sort of help understand the particular functional expertise you're trying to get. So that's probably the one for me in terms of how I'm coping. I surround myself with amazing people in that function and like have a brilliant CFO and I really enjoy having that relationship where I'm constantly telling him I'm learning and I, I want you to help share with me the things that you think I can be better at. One of the things that I think are, it's especially intimidating for people in their teens and certainly in their early mid twenties is networking and expanding that circle of, um, of contacts. Do you have any advice for teenagers and 20 somethings as to how they could become more skilled at it? Yeah, I do. This is one of my favorite topics because I think that I worry that for today's teens and 20 somethings that they've been given a lot of the wrong messages. You know, I think people are out there sitting behind a computer trying to make the biggest LinkedIn network they have and realize, not realizing that has zero value. <laughs> I actually read a great article by Adam Grant on this topic. And I think my first piece of advice would be quality over quantity. And my second piece of advice would be like actually do the work with the people. And that is how they will remember you. Like just going out to conferences and getting business cards is of zero value. Whereas if you realize by the time you're 25, that you've really had a deep work experience and delivered for five people, those are the five people that are going to turn into 10, 15, 20 as you, <laughs> as you go up your career. And I think if you've really, really, nurtured those relationships and continue to stay in touch with them. I mean, for me, my two mentors that basically were there for me at the very start of my career are still my two greatest mentors. Like I think that's, it's kind of how it works. And so the more you are willing to just work hard and deliver and be there to help others, the more they will be there to help you. There's a great story that I've heard you tell about one of your mentors who was a boss that you had at Gatorade. Mm -hmm. Would you share that story about when you, I, you talk about coming home, you were so frustrated, you, you cried on your husband's shoulder, <laughs> you were ready to quit. Yes, yes. It is one of my favorite stories. So um, Massimo Damore is his name and he was my boss when I was leading the turnaround of Gatorade. And he's a wonderful, crazy Italian with lots of crazy hand gestures, which I always love. And he, I do remember it was a grueling time in my career. It was a very tough business situation. It was smack in the middle of recession and I had just given birth to my third child. So I was like dealing with a lot of hormones thrown in the mix. It was definitely not fun. And I can remember literally at one point of near exhaustion, just, you know, getting on the phone with him and saying, I can't do this anymore. And I don't think I could go on and we're failing and it's not working. And he looked at me and he said, you know, when you're crossing a river and you're halfway across, it takes just as long to get back to the start as it does to the other side. <laughs> Keep going. And I was like, he's absolutely right. It was such a great piece of advice because I do think that, you know, for all of us, particularly in this day and age when there's so many options, like at any moment in time, you can quit your job and you're going to be able to find another one when you're in the earlier part of your career. But if you 
do that and you miss the opportunity to get to the other side of the river and to get the learnings that come from it and to get the experience. It's such a giant missed opportunity. And not only was he right, but in that case, you know, thank God we did stick it out to get to the other side because it ended up being one of the most incredible triumphs of my career not me, but for my team, it was just the shared experience that is unlike anything I've ever experienced. And if you don't stick with things, you never get to see that on the other side. So Sarah, you've, you've now mentioned, you've alluded a couple of times to the firings that you had earlier in your career. You've referred to, I think it was that period as the canyon of career despair, which is such a great <laughs> evocative expression. Uh, can you talk about what, how, why you were fired and then how you were covered? You, you don't have to tell both stories, both times, but one of those times as a kind of teaching moment for how you were able to dig deep, kind of recover your pride enough to go out and get another job. I mean, the first time was by far the most painful um, because I got, I was one person who was fired. So it wasn't like a layoff. This was when I was at Virgin Megastores. There was one person and that was me. And I was given one week of severance um, and a one-way ticket back to New Zealand. And I lost my visa and my green card application all in one 10-minute meeting. <laughs> and like, it was, you're so bad. We want you out of our company and our country. Like, it was pretty embarrassing. And for me in that situation, as any immigrant would know, staying in this country, I had three months to figure out how to get another company to sponsor me, which is incredibly challenging. And it was humiliating beyond. I mean, I was 26 years old. I thought I was on the top of my career game. Everything was going great. And when that happens and you are that person who has walked out the door with your box of stuff, it is, I can't even begin to describe how mortifying it feels. People have often said to me, so how the hell do you explain it in your next interview? Which is a great question. And what I would say is that for me, I went through a real process of painful sort of self-reflection and mourning, I would say. And then I can remember, you know, initially when people would ask me what happened and I'd say I lost my job and that company, they were idiots and they didn't get it. You know, I was blaming it on the situation and the people and the company. And then I would see in that person asking me, a look in their eye of like, they didn't really believe me. And I realized it was because I didn't believe myself. And I knew that the truth was I had fucked it up. (laughs) I had it coming in. I deserved it. And it wasn't until I kind of fully acknowledged that myself that I was then able to say, okay, now that I know that I made this happen or I let this happen or I contributed to this happening, I am in control of not letting it happen again. And so in the next interview, when people would say to me, you know, why did you leave Virgin? And I would say, listen, I got let go because I didn't ask for help. It's to do da da da. And here's the thing, I will never let that happen again. Gosh, that was the greatest learning. And it's amazing how in an interview situation, the person on the other side of the desk, I think suddenly is like, wow, this is someone who's truly, honestly, authentically aware of who they are. And to me, that was probably the greatest recovery out of all of it was just realizing that trying to cover things up in life is probably the worst thing you can do. Whereas if you actually just come out and say what it is, it will get you a lot further, (laughs) I think, in the interview process. Thank you for sharing that. 
So final time for coffee question here. If mm-hmm. you could go back and do college all over again, based mm. on the wisdom that you have today, what advice would you give yourself? Number one, it's so easy to say this now, but you know, worry less and have more patience. Like I think I was very, very ambitious and driven and sort of constantly impatient, like constantly worrying, like I need to get to the next level. I need to push myself. And in actual fact, you know, for me, I have had a career of epic highs and incredibly crashing lows. (laughs) And I think if I had been a little bit more patient and methodical, I might not have had, I might've been able to get to the same place without so many of those ups and downs. Yeah. So I think I would just say, enjoy the ride. It's going to be okay. Like I think there's, you have a tendency to really worry that you're not moving fast enough or whatever it may be, but you are, and you're going to suddenly realize when you're at 46 that God, it's gone by too quickly. (laughs) Oh, Sarah, I think that It is so clear to our Java Junkie community why you are where you are and how fortunate Flywheel is to have a chief executive officer who is so open and so willing to make herself vulnerable to allow others to learn and grow. I want to thank you so sincerely for making the time for coffee with me and the time for coffee community. This was just a wonderful, wonderful period that I got to spend talking with you. Likewise. And I love the whole time for coffee community and idea. I love what you're doing, Andrea, for this generation because they're awesome, awesome people out there and we want to see them go on and thrive. So it's been a real pleasure to be a part of it. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.